Well, indeed, it's been a special morning already, and now we are able to come and open God's Word and to hear from the Lord Himself. So as we do, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Oh God on high, we address you this morning with humility and with reverence. We recognize and we confess your great sovereignty over all things, including our own lives. As we come to your word this morning, we recognize that this is your day, the day for you to speak to your gathered people. And so I pray that as we open your word that you would truly speak to us from your word and may your spirit apply these things to our hearts. May you open blind eyes. May you soften hard hearts. And may you enable all of us to see the glory of your only son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen. Well, indeed, Christmas is a time and season in which we celebrate many good things. We enjoy many good things at Christmas and around Christmas. There, of course, are good desserts. No doubt your counter is full with them, even as we speak, many of which have been consumed already and some that will be consumed, yea, verily, this afternoon. But... Uh, Good food often surrounds the holidays. There's creative light displays. No doubt you've driven by them yourselves, either intentionally or unintentionally. Uh, just last night, we were pulled into a neighborhood by the great glow that came from around the corner to check out how they had decked out their house. These seem to get more and more uh, amazing every year. And there's uh, familiar music. Now, I'll leave it up to you to whether you determine that's good music or not, but uh, there's at least familiar music that we hear repeatedly every year, and there's something that's, uh, that's warm about hearing songs that we know and are familiar with. But more than that, there's a deeper good that we experience at Christmas as well, right? Particularly time with family, even maybe even enjoyed this morning as you sit with relatives, there's love that is expressed, sometimes in a way that isn't even seen at other times of the year as we gather gifts for those whom we love and we are able to give those. We also receive love as we receive gifts from others and cards and warm wishes from those we have not heard from from quite a while. And there can be generally just this general sense of warmth and peace that people enjoy at Christmas time. But as we know, the Christmas season is only that, a season. It comes and it goes. And with the passing of the Christmas season, when all the gifts have been opened and all the cookies have been eaten, we are left with what we had before. We are left with reality. And the reality is, is that there are some things that Christmas cannot give us. There are some things that Christmas as a season, as a holiday, and for all the warmth and good things that are there, it can't give us. We find after the Christmas season that the relationships that were often, that were broken before the season came are still broken afterward. 
The pain that we experience in our own bodies is still there. Our hearts may still have that haunting sense of guilt. And we can become blinded to what's going on even inside of us. We fail to recognize a brokenness that may reside in our own hearts and souls. It's amazing that we have such a remarkable ability to be smug about the rightness of how we live our lives when there may be destruction all around us, not recognizing that it may be stemming from our own hearts. We fail to see the problems within us. And so most devastating of all, Christmas, as a season and a holiday and for all the good things it brings, it cannot lift our deepest need, and that is a spiritual darkness. But Christmas is also an opportunity. Christmas each year is a celebration that can remind us that our greatest need did not come delivered in a box wrapped in paper, but it came in a manger. You see, friends, we don't need new stuff. We don't need new life hacks. We don't need new relationship tips. We need light of revelation from the Lord on high. We need Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we're going to look at two individuals presented in the New Testament who were waiting for that light of revelation. They were waiting for God's light to shine upon them. They understood what was most important. They had their hearts set on God's promise so that when he fulfilled that promise, they would be ready to receive him. And so I invite you to turn and open your personal copy of God's word to Luke chapter 2. We were just there a moment ago. If you don't have a copy with you, you can use the Bible in the pew rack directly in front of you and turn to page 1019. Now again, we've already heard the first part of this chapter this morning, and we're going to pick up where the scripture reading ended and continue on through in the chapter through verse 38. So we will begin reading at verse 22 and read through verse 38 this morning, even though we'll be looking specifically at verses 25 through 38. So follow along as I read in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 22. It says, And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have presented in the presence of all peoples 
a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher, She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This morning, from these verses... We are going to see four reasons, four reasons why we must look to Christ this Christmas. He is the greatest answer for our souls, and we must look to him every day, but particularly today on Christmas. So let's look at the first reason this passage gives us for why we should look to Christ this Christmas. Number one, it's because Jesus fulfills our longing. Jesus fulfills our longing. And we see this in verses 25 through 28. But just to review, before we get to verse 25, we are just to remind you what we read earlier, and that is of the birth of Christ. Verse 1 tells us that Caesar Augustus, the ruler over the whole Roman Empire, was taking a census. And at the very same time, God, the sovereign of the universe, was sending his son to be born in Bethlehem. These were two vastly different displays of power, one by a human ruler and one by a divine ruler. Joseph and Mary, as the verses say, trek from Nazareth down to Bethlehem, and they go to their hometown to be registered with the census. Now, we don't know if they rode a donkey. There's a chance they may have, but I would, I would point it most likely they did not because Donkeys were owned by those who had some wealth and some means, and Mary and Joseph were not those who had much money. It says that verse 4 makes it explicit that Joseph was of the family of David, that he was descended from the great king of Israel, and that he was going to Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David. This re-emphasizes for us that Jesus Christ the Messiah was truly qualified to be the Messiah because he was descended from David. But look at verse 6. It says, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And while they were there, I believe this phrase alone blows up most of our nativity uh, descriptions which describe Mary entering Bethlehem about to give birth any second. It seems that rather they had gone to Bethlehem, were there for some time. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. They got settled there before it was time. Verse 7 then says that she gave birth to her firstborn son and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now this Verse does not say that Jesus was born in a stable, but only that he was laid in a manger. We typically think of a manger and attach that to a stable. But the word for in here 
There's no room for them in the inn. We typically think of some sort of ancient hotel, that there was a, a roadside lodging place that they went and knocked on the door and an angry innkeeper said, no, there's no room here, go. All I got is a stable out back. And so we send, send them out back. And, but this word for inn is not best translated in. It's best translated later in the book of Luke, in Luke 23, uh, 22, verse 11, as a guest room. This is the same Greek word used for the upper room where Jesus spent the Last Supper with his disciples, which was not in a roadside lodging, but was in a guest room. And so they most likely, I believe, arrived at a relative's house, and the guest room was full, and so they were required then to stay in the main living quarters and for Mary to give birth in the main living quarters. The manger's there because in first, many first century homes, they would bring in their animals at night, tie them at a post, and have a manger there for them to be able to eat throughout the night. And so because Mary gave birth in the main part of the house, Jesus was then laid in one of those mangers. But needless to say, these were humble beginnings for the gift of God's Son, were they not? He did not send his great son to the family of royalty to be born in a palace but to a poor family who were guests in someone else's house. Now, if the rich and the famous of the world that night missed the arrival of Jesus, heaven was not going to miss it. In fact, God the Father sent angels to proclaim the arrival of Jesus so that no one would miss it. But as was mentioned earlier, they were sent to shepherds who then went and saw the child. And they left praising God and wondering at this amazing reality that God had sent his son, his greatest gift of love. Verse 21, as we read earlier this morning, tells us that after eight days he was circumcised and named, given the name that the angel gave him, Jesus. And verse 22, as we read, picks up the narrative 40 days after Jesus was born and Mary now needs to go to the temple to be purified after her birth of her son as the law instructed in Leviticus chapter 12. And they needed to dedicate Jesus to the Lord. Now as they are there going about obeying the Lord according to his law, it's there that we meet our first special individual and that is the man named Simeon in verse 25. Look at the verse with me. It says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now from this verse alone, we gain several bits of information about who this man was. Number one, he was a resident of Jerusalem. It says clearly that he uh, was a man in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a key focus for Luke, the author of this gospel. He mentions Jerusalem 30 times. And that is compared up against Matthew and Mark, who only mention uh, Jerusalem like about a dozen times or so. Jerusalem is major for Luke. He begins the book in Jerusalem. He ends the book in Jerusalem. We also learn from this ver verse that Simeon was a man of character. He was righteous, it says. He was uh, righteous, meaning he was just in his dealings with other people. He was an honest man and followed the law of the Lord. But it also says that he was devout. Devout. He took his religion seriously. He took his relationship with Yahweh seriously. He realized that 
His first priority was to follow the Lord, and he strived to do that with all of his life and with all of his heart and soul. But then we also learn, skip, if you skip to the last line of verse 25, that the Holy Spirit was upon him. The Holy Spirit was upon him. And this signals to us, his readers, that this man was probably going to serve some sort of prophetic function. He was going to open his mouth and give some sort of prophecy. We saw this earlier with Elizabeth and with her husband, Zechariah. The Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke a prophecy. And here, in verse 26, 25, 26, and 27, the Holy Spirit is mentioned in each of those three verses. Clearly, the Spirit is about to do something. But lastly, we learn, and this is the phrase we skipped over, he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. Waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, we can often skip over this, but this is important for us to see this morning. We have been looking these last three weeks at the longing for the Messiah that we see in the Old Testament, particularly we looked in the Pentateuch and the prophecies that were given there as the Old Testament saints began to get more and more information about who this Messiah was going to be and the longing began to grow in their hearts. Here we see two believers who were continuing that long line of waiting faithfully and longing for the Messiah. And here we learn that Simeon is waiting for the consolation of Israel. Consolation is a word that simply means comfort or encouragement. It describes the lifting of someone's spirits. When someone is emotionally down or depressed, we seek to console or comfort or encourage them. We want to cheer them up with hope. And so used in this context, consolation of Israel is a phrase that comes bearing a whole lot of Old Testament freight. It's, it's a summary phrase that's encapsulating so many Old Testament themes and passages. Through the prophets, God had promised that he would send comfort to Israel who was lost in exile. He would save them through the Messiah. And I want to show you uh, some of these passages. So turn back with me, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. We see these verses that played into this expectation. Why was Simeon waiting for the consolation of Israel? It's because the Old Testament made it very clear that Yahweh their God was going to provide consolation. He's going to provide comfort. And so Simeon clung to those promises with hope. Isaiah 40 begins the last major section of the book of Isaiah. This, from Isaiah 40 to 66, the last chapter, this focuses on Israel's salvation. And here in verse 1, of chapter 40, Yahweh opens up this section of the book on salvation, describing comfort for his people. Look at it, Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Here, the Lord is describing comfort for his people, that they have, there's, the warfare is ceasing, their iniquity is atoned for, and there can be final peace and consolation. But turn with me a few chapters to Isaiah 49. This is scattered all throughout 
the prophets, but even this section of Isaiah, this last latter part of Isaiah. Isaiah 49, verse, thir verse 13. It says, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Turn to chapter 51, verse 3. 51, verse 3. For the Lord comforts, there's that word again, comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. Turn to 61, chapter 61, verse 2. Let's start in verse 1. This is a messianic passage that Jesus himself read from in Nazareth that we, read, we can read about in Luke chapter 4. But this very speaks about the Messiah himself and what is he going to do to Israel? It says, the spirit of the Lord, verse 1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Look at this, to comfort all who mourn. In verse 3, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. You can see the comfort that here specifically the Messiah was going to bring to Israel. Let's turn a few chapters to 66, the last chapter of Isaiah. I want... We're going to read verses 10 through 14 in Isaiah 66. I want you to see not only how it talks about Israel, but talks about Jerusalem. And we'll pick up on that later this morning. But verse 10 says, Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her. All you who love her, rejoice with her in joy. All you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast. That you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip, and bounced upon her knees, as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see, and your heart shall rejoice, your bones shall flourish like the grass, the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants, and he shall show his indignation against his enemies. Can you see why Simeon, who's meditating on these passages and many more, was waiting for the consolation, the comfort of Israel? And particularly being in Jerusalem, he was waiting for that comfort to come to Zion, to come to Israel. He read these passages, friends, and he believed them. They were not fairy tales. They were not just some religious literature. They were truth that he clung to. He believed that Yahweh, his God, would indeed send comfort to his people and that he would be faithful to his promises. Now, back in Luke chapter 2, 
we read of a, of a unique thing in, in this man's life. It says, verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. This is amazing. This man who grew up in, in Judaism hearing about this Messiah who would come and he's now told specifically to him that he would not die until he saw the Lord's Christ or the Lord's Messiah. Christ is simply the word that means anointed one, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament Mashiach or Messiah. And so this is, he is he's been told that the Messiah is going to come in his lifetime. Can you, I just can't imagine what that would have done to him. How excited he would have been to know that after hundreds of years of waiting and expectation for this whole nation that he was told the Messiah would come in his lifetime. I kind of wonder, did he tell anyone? Hey, by the way, you know, God revealed something to me. And okay, maybe he did tell that to somebody. Uh, would they have believed him? Simeon, you're nutso, man. <laughs> Whatever. But no, he, he was received this special word from the Lord that he would see the Messiah. This would have no doubt energized. It would have been the engine of his heart as he went and worshiped the Lord and as he lived his life to know that God was going to enable his eyes to see the Messiah. But then one day it says, verse 27, he came in the spirit into the temple. Did the Spirit tell him, listen, I'm going to reveal the Messiah to you today, so you better go? Or did he just felt, feel a sense? We don't know how it worked out internally, but he came in the Spirit, the Spirit clearly directing him to come to the temple. And as he's there, he recognizes the Holy Family. Mary and Joseph are there with a baby in their hands, and he knows exactly who that child is. And so it says that he goes over to them, and verse 28, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. I, I kind of imagine the scene of Simeon. We don't know exactly his age. He seems to be a man advanced in years. And he sees this child. There's got to be so much joy and excitement. He may be trembling. There may be tears coming down his cheeks as, as this great longing and expectation is finally, finally revealed before him and fulfilled. And he goes over and he picks up this child and he puts him in his arms. The tenderness and care for this Messiah who would be his deliverer. And he praises and blesses God. The Messiah had finally come and his heart explodes in praise to God. Every good thing that God had promised would come through the Messiah. And now Simeon could see that he was here. No more waiting. Every good thing that the prophets promised would be coming through this one. Their longing was finally fulfilled. And so I believe, friends, in this scene of Simeon holding the Messiah, representing, I believe, all of Israel's longing and expectation finally fulfilled as Israel, figuratively as a nation, gets to hold their Messiah. There's a lesson that Luke wants us to see here as well. That just as Jesus fulfills the longing of Simeon, so he fulfills the longings of you and I. He is the answer to our hopes and dreams too. Now some may deny such a claim that Jesus is truly the answer for their hopes and longings. 
But when we look at the deepest needs of the human heart, when we realize that we all share similar hopes, for example, we want this world to be made right. We don't want bad guys to do bad things. We want evil and wickedness to be eradicated from this planet. We want peace, world peace. We want security for our families. We want to be joy, for there to be unending happiness, for there to be nothing, nothing to disrupt that joy. And this is exactly, friends, what the Bible promises Jesus will ultimately deliver. One day, he will return to this earth and he will make this earth like a paradise. The paradise that God originally intended for us and for this earth. And don't be mistaken, it'll be greater than all of our wildest dreams. But not only will he bring external peace in our world and in relationships, but Jesus fulfills our longings for internal peace as well. He heals and he soothes our hearts. And he does this by dealing with our sin, by making us right with God, by healing our relationship with our creator. In a little bit, we're going to look at how Jesus does this, but the point here is that Jesus is the only one who can actually bring peace and comfort to this world and to our hearts. And so we need to look to Christ this Christmas to bring that joy that we long for, that comfort, that peace, that inner tranquility. So we need to look to Christ as Christmas because only he fulfills our longings. But let's look at a second reason we need to focus on Jesus. And that is, number two, Jesus provides our salvation. Jesus provides our salvation. And we see this in verses 29 through 32. While Simeon is there holding the baby Jesus, he breaks out in a song. Now we don't know if he actually had a tune to go with these words, but it's clearly poetry and he delivers it in the power of the Spirit. Historically, this has been known as the nuke dimittis, which are the first two words in the Latin translation of this song. And Simeon begins, verse 29, by saying, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Simeon simply saying, I can die now. I can leave. I can go. This my, my longing has been fulfilled. You've, you've kept your promise, Lord. I can go. My mission here on earth is done. And why? Does he say, because my eyes have seen your Messiah, my eyes have seen your Christ? Well, we know that's true, but what does he say in verse 30? Look at it. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Simeon interchanges the Messiah or Christ word with salvation. My eyes have not just seen your Christ, my eyes have seen your salvation. He understood that God's Messiah would be the one who would bring salvation. Now remember that Simeon's been waiting for this consolation of Israel. Isaiah 40, we already read, comfort, comfort, says the Lord to his people. It's a key passage and I believe this text is on his mind along with many others that describe this consolation, this comfort for Israel. And that passage speaks of seeing God's salvation. 
Particularly Isaiah 40 verse 5, which is quoted in Luke 3 verse 6, says, All flesh shall see the salvation of God. All flesh shall see the salvation of God. So he's got Isaiah 40 that says this, and on his mind, and there he then says, I can depart in peace because my eyes have seen your salvation. Now, this salvation, friends, is not just for Israel. Yes, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, but Simeon makes the provocative and amazing statement that this salvation is to, for all the nations. Look at where he says in verse 31, that you, the salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Isaiah chapter 42 verse 6 and chapter 49 verse 6 both express that salvation would be brought by the servant of Yahweh. Here Simeon makes it clear that Jesus is the one who fulfills that great servant throughout the prophecies of Isaiah. He is the one to bring and usher in this salvation. He would bring light to the Gentiles. He would bring glory to Israel. His salvation would not make the Gentiles into Israel, but Israel and Gentiles would, unique, would retain their unique identity in God's plan as they come together and believe in Israel's Messiah. Now Simeon clearly understood that the mission of the Messiah was not simply to save Israel, but the nations as well. And this reality is built way back into Genesis the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 12, where we get the Abrahamic covenant, where God promises, makes a covenant with Abraham, and says, listen, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to give you a family, and through you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. It's through Abraham and his descendants, the families will be blessed. And so now, 2,000 years later, Simeon sees with his eyes the specific descendant who was going to bless the nations. It was the baby born to Mary. Now friends, it's quite likely that all of us here this morning are Gentiles by birth, that we are not Jews according to our lineage. We were not born into God's chosen nation. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Friends, we have no inherent claim upon Israel's Messiah based upon our lineage. But it is through Jesus Christ that we have access to all of the great promises that are found in Scripture. We have been brought near by Jesus Christ himself. We have had the light of the revelation of God revealed to us. The revela a light of revelation to the Gentiles. Friends, the light of revelation has reached to you and to me here in the 21st century in the United States of America. The light of God has shown to us Gentiles here. And for that we can rejoice. For that we can celebrate that we have the revelation of God to us Friends, these words that Simeon declared so many years ago help to give me so much meaning to our Christmas celebration. We do not gather simply to enjoy family, good food, yummy desserts, 
We don't celebrate Jesus just because he came to earth in a show of solidarity or to be an example of moral living. No, make no mistake, friends. Jesus came to save. Jesus came on a mission of salvation. The baby in the manger born to Mary came to redeem fallen humanity. In fact, the mission of Jesus could be summed up and found in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, in which he says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He came to seek and save the lost. And folks, we must understand that without Jesus, without trusting and believing in him wholeheartedly, we too are in that category of lost. We are lost without Jesus. Each one of us is lost in our sin and rebellion against our creator. We have turned away from God and we have sought to control our own lives apart from him. We want to be the master of our faiths. We want to be the Lord of our lives. And this has led to disastrous results. But friends, the hope of Christmas, the great good news of Christmas is that God sent his son to enter into our darkness, into our lostness, and to redeem us and save us from that rebellion and sin. He came to save us. Now, how did he save us? For those of us that were here last night, we heard the exposition from Isaiah 50 that he was the one who sacrificed himself for us. He bore our griefs. He took our transgressions upon himself. He provided salvation by becoming a sacrifice for us upon the cross. He went to the cross and bore the sin upon him then and took the wrath of God that each one of us deserved. And as God punished his son, all those who placed their faith in him would receive redemption. The record of guilt that stands upon each of our heads is wiped out if we trust in Jesus, the one and only sacrifice for sin. Jesus saves through his own giving of himself. At Christmas, God gave his son. And at Easter, we celebrate that God gave, that the son gave his life. And all of this displays the love of God. Friends, don't you see the generosity and the love of our, of our God? He didn't leave us in our lostness and our sin, but he came to rescue us. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God did not wait until we had gotten our act together. He didn't wait until we cleaned ourselves up so that until we were more moral and we looked better and we were then more righteous. God came while we were still sinners to redeem fallen humanity. And so the question I ask you this morning, do you know this salvation that Jesus offers? Do you know the salvation of Jesus? Have you looked to him to save you from your sin? Is he your salvation? Now you may be sitting here this morning and agreeing, yes, I need to be rescued. My life's a mess. I need salvation. And you might know that you can't fix it. You may be feeling crushed by your own brokenness and your guilt. But let this verse remind you, friends, that Jesus is your salvation. He is, saves you. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're pierced with grief, with pain, with loss, 
and suffering, difficult circumstances that you're going through right now, friends, remember that Jesus is your salvation. He has hope for you. No matter what's going on in your life this morning, remember that in his love, he reaches out to sinners such as you and I. For us to know this salvation requires that we come to him in humility and repentance and faith. Jesus says he did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, which means that we need to confess our sin before him. We need to do a 180, turn away from the way that we've been living, controlling our own lives, and we do a 180 and turn to Jesus Christ and confess him as Lord and submit our lives to him, and he calls the shots. He now is Lord, and we are to live like that as we recognize the salvation that he offers. So friends, I invite you to stop running away from the Lord, your creator, and to see the salvation that's offered through Jesus and to turn to him this morning. Well, we must look to Jesus this Christmas, first because he fulfills our longing, and secondly, because he himself is our salvation. Thirdly, though, Jesus reveals our hearts. The third reason we need to look to Jesus at this Christmas is because Jesus reveals our hearts. And we see this in verses 33 through 35. Now, you can imagine if you're Mary and Joseph and you're walking with your firstborn child, you know, that um, a bit of nervousness that first parents with their, their firstborn are, right? You're like, I don't want to break this baby and mess this up. I hope I'm doing the right thing. And they're walking through the temple and going, okay, we've never done this before. Here we go. And... All of a sudden, this old man walks up to them and takes their baby into their arms. And they're going, okay. Uh, uh, and then suddenly he breaks out in song or in this great prophecy about who their son is. They had already heard about what the angels said to the shepherds. They had already each been visited by angels previously. So in one sense, this isn't brand new, but it still has got to arrest them as they're there in the temple in the midst of everybody. And so it says, verse 33, his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. Yeah, no kidding. They were, they were amazed once again at what God had revealed through Simeon. But Simeon wasn't done speaking. He goes on in verses 34 and 35 to speak specifically to Mary. You'll see that in verse 34, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother. He goes on to describe, to say that, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So Simeon tells Mary, listen, this son, this little baby, is the one that is going to divide Israel. Right now, it may look like Israel is all together. Israel is one great nation that is all trusting in the Lord and is all waiting for their Messiah. But I'll tell you what, Mary, this baby that you've just delivered is going to grow, is going to come into Israel, and he is going to be the watershed within this nation. There are going to be those that rise, and there are going to be those that fall. He's going to be a sign that's actually opposed. This is the first indication there's going to be opposition to this baby. Yes, it's great that the Messiah has come, but not everyone is going to welcome his arrival. He's going to be opposed. And he, his presence is going to reveal, get this, where each individual stands with the Lord himself. In other words, no longer could someone say, oh, I'm with Israel. I'm in God's chosen people. Now they had to give an account individually for where their soul was at with the Lord. 
Jesus would reveal that the religious leaders of Israel were not the God-fearers that they claimed to be, but were actually followers of Satan. Jesus would reveal that, surprisingly, many of the prostitutes and tax collectors were among the believing elite of Israel. They believed quickly and saw Jesus for who he was. His presence would show that some of the most good-looking people externally, those who seemed to have their act together and seemed to follow the law to the nth degree, were actually the most rotten internally. And on the flip side, that some of the people with the worst morals end up having the grandest faith. Truly, the presence of Jesus would have an amazing effect upon Israel. Simeon has a, a sad prophecy of warning for Mary. She's been the favored one, the one who's given the great honor of giving birth to the Messiah, and yet there's a sword that will pierce her heart. I believe that this is an indication, a, a, a reference to the emotional pain that Mary will feel as she sees her son rejected by the nation. She's going to see her son continually rejected time and again, ultimately leading to him being crucified by Israel. And she's going to stand there at the base of the cross and see this son that she delivered and great agony and pain upon the cross hour after hour. A sword would pierce her heart as well. But it says in the last phrase of verse 35 that the thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. Jesus would reveal finally what was going on inside of people. People would either show to be spiritually soft or spiritually hard. They would show to be either trusting in God's promises of salvation or trusting in their own righteousness. And friends, this reality has been true of Jesus ever since. That Jesus himself is a watershed in every person's life. The question is, what do you do with Jesus? What will you and I do with Jesus? Will we trust and believe him as God's promise? Or will we reject him and not embrace him? It's that black or white. Some people would like to add Jesus into their life in kind of a soft sort of way and believe that, that oh yeah, I, I believe in Jesus. He's kind of a help to me and he benefits me and, but I'm going to continue living my life. Friends, that's not taking Jesus on his own terms. That's actually, in a more subtle way, rejecting him, saying that you don't want to follow his word. You don't want to follow the stipulations that he's laid down because he says, if anyone were to come after me, he must lay down his own life. He must take up his cross daily and follow me. To follow Jesus requires self-denial, requires death, that we die to ourselves and we give ourselves, surrender ourselves completely to Jesus Christ. He is Lord or he is nothing. Too often, people don't want Jesus to be Lord. They believe in their own good deeds to secure their eternity. They believe they've been a good enough person. I think I'll be okay. God was going to grade on a scale. I'm better than other people. But friends, there is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ and no salvation apart from the cross of Christ. Now, you might be able to fool people around you, but Jesus knows our hearts and one day will reveal all hearts. 
The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2 that their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Friends, make no mistake, Jesus will reveal the secrets of every one of our hearts. And the question is, the question for you this morning is, where does your allegiance lie? Only you can answer that. And you must answer it before God. Not before others, primarily, but primarily before the Lord who will be your judge. And so looking to Jesus helps us to reveal where our hearts truly are. Now let's look finally this morning, the fourth reason why we must look to Christ at Christmas, and this text helps us to see, is that Jesus prompts our joy. Fourth and finally, Jesus prompts our joy. Verses 36 through 38, we meet the second character. I mentioned that we're going to see two characters, two people, and finally we see here the final one. First, it was a man in Jerusalem, and secondly, now is a woman of the tribe of Asher. But what links them together is what we see in verse 25 and verse 38. Both of them were waiting. Both of them were waiting. Both of them were longing for the Messiah and the great peace and prosperity the Messiah would bring. This passage ends where it began with Simeon. Now Deuteronomy calls for two witnesses to verify any testimony. Here, Luke gives us two, two witnesses to the authenticity of Jesus that this child who is uh, revealed here in the temple is truly the Messiah. We don't know much about Anna, just what's revealed here. This is the only place that both of these people are mentioned. She's a woman who was married for seven years and then after seven years her husband dies and then she remained a widow until this point when she's 84 years old. And it says she did not leave the temple. She's of the tribe of Asher, which is a kind of an obscure tribe of the northern kingdom of Israel, which shows, number one, that the ten tribes were not lost in exile. They were able to keep track of where they were, and, and there were still remnants of those. But secondly, that there is a, a, a man in Jerusalem and a woman from the northern kingdom, and together we have a testimony of the whole nation of Israel. This is the Messiah for the whole nation. Both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom are waiting for the Messiah, and Jesus fulfills that longing. She too was a devout woman like Simeon, spending her time in the temple, worshiping through prayer and fasting. Her life seemed to revolve simply around these religious duties of fervent prayer and worship. And now on this day, she enters the temple and then presumably the Spirit reveals to her or she overhears Simeon's words, but she realizes that the Messiah is here, that that baby in, the, in Mary's arms is the Messiah, and it says that she begins speaking of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, this redemption of Jerusalem is synonymous with the consolation of Israel. These are very similar concepts. But this phrase particularly emphasizes the role that Jerusalem has in God's plans. Not only will Israel as a people be restored, but Jerusalem will be utterly transformed and cleansed as a city. 
And when the Lord returns to this earth to save Israel and Jerusalem, listen to what Isaiah records in Isaiah 52, verses 9 and 10. It says, Break forth into singing, and you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. There's that word comfort. He has redeemed Israel. There you get the redemption of Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Anna understood this, so that when the Christ child was presented in the temple, she immediately began thanking God and telling others about him. Her heart has been waiting and longing for many years. The prayer and fasting is this, is this sense of, of fasting, of waiting, of, of angst, of something isn't right and we're fasting until it is right, until we are totally fulfilled and here her desires are fulfilled and she can't keep it in. She tells all far and wide about this Messiah. Jesus has filled her heart with joy. And friends, I believe this is an illustration of what happens for all of those who have truly trusted in Jesus Christ, who have seen Israel's Messiah. We've, we open our mouths, and we open our mouths first by giving thanks to God. That's what it says, verse 38. She began to give thanks to God. She praises him because he's the one who has done this great thing. Our personal worship is what is first ignited. But secondly, we tell others about the amazing reality that Jesus has come, that salvation is available in his name. And so friends, if you are here this morning, you're short on joy, I encourage you to look to Christ. Look to Jesus, the great Messiah, the one who fulfills all of our hopes and dreams. True joy is found in Christ if we surrender and believe in him. There are many good things that we enjoy on this earth but they will one day all fade away. Jesus and the salvation he offers is the only thing that can't be taken away from us. As we close this morning, I ask you once again to consider whether you know this Jesus. Do you know the one that Simeon saw and Anna rejoiced in? Do you know the living Son of God who was crucified, buried, and rose again and now is seated at the right hand of the throne of God? Do you have a living relationship with him? If you don't, you can meet him today, Christmas 2022. You can know the Savior that came to bring salvation to humanity. He can bring it to you and to your life. You can finally know the one who can make you whole. The one who can save you from your sin. The one who can sympathize with your pain and suffering. And the one who displayed the love of God by dying on the cross for sinners. The one who is our only hope. Friends, Jesus was born for you. Let's bow in prayer. Oh, Father, we indeed give thanks to you and praise you for the gift of your son that you have sent him to come and to redeem humanity that your salvation has been revealed and that we who are here who have been estranged from you who have been who were alienated because of our sin are able to be brought near because of the sacrifice of Christ and father i pray for each individual heart that is here this morning you would help them to be able to think through where they stand with you. And may they be able to see the glory 
of Jesus Christ, the baby born in the manger 2,000 years ago, who is the Savior of all who would trust in him. Father, would you help us to see our need for Jesus this Christmas? And it's in his name we pray, amen.